0: The hard work is to say, I care about my long-term self, and so I have to allow that I might be wrong.
1: Welcome to the Productivities Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Vardy, and this week on the show, I am welcoming Annie Duke. Annie's got a new book out called How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. I was thrilled to have this conversation with her. I've never talked with Annie before, although I am a fan of her work, you know, thinking in small bets, you know, and then of course, all the other stuff that she's done, we get into a whole bunch of stuff that I both expected that we could talk about, but then also stuff that I didn't expect us to talk about. This is a really scintillating conversation and I I just can't wait to share it with you. So I'm not going to wait any longer. Here is my conversation with Annie Duke. Here on the Productivities Podcast. Enjoy. We had a lovely conversation before we hit record. I like to do that with every single person that I chat with to get to know them a little bit better because we haven't had the opportunity to talk before. I feel like we're now kindred spirits in a lot of ways yes. when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to um, you know sci-fi shows and 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 how we watch them and how we decide you know kind of when to do these sort of things. And your book, How to Decide: Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, is out now. Where what was the impetus behind saying, this is a book that I need to get out there? Like, this is a book I need to write.
0: Yeah. So the, this book is, um, so it's interesting. It was really a book about kind of like, why 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 do we need to be thinking about uncertainty in our decisions? Uh, why do we need to pay attention to luck and hidden information? How does the, un, uh, the uncertainty in the environment in which we decide uh, frustrate our ability to become better at it, um, allow uh, things like, you know, we, we hear a lot about like cognitive bias and things like that. How does that allow that to take hold? Um, there was a little bit in there about how you might get better at it, but it was mostly kind of like, it was mostly very much like a big why book with like a smattering of, of how, um, and as I started interacting with the readers of, of that particular book, um, what I kept hearing from them was, okay, there's lots of luck in the way that, uh, things turn out, when I decide, I'm deciding with imperfect information. Uh, We all have this resulting problem where we pay way too much attention to the outcomes of individual decisions uh, in determining uh, what decision quality was and so on and so forth. So uh, how do I do it? How do I actually become better at um, making better decisions? What would a really good decision process look like that would allow me to improve given given the uncertainty? and I had enough people ask me that question, basically, that I said, well, actually, that that's actually a, a good point. I should probably write something on the how. I think that there's a paucity, like people aren't talking about this enough, like how would you actually do it? I think there's like such a huge literature on what goes wrong with human decision making and not such a big literature on how, how you can make it better. And And I think that maybe I'll tackle that. So I originally was thinking about the book as like really just a workbook that would go along with Thinking in Bets. Like I would say, go look at chapter one and then here are some exercises. Uh, and I realized, no, I should really untether it from that. So so how to decide is now a book that you could read. Having never ever read Thinking in Bets, you would totally get what you want out of it. There's actually a lot of why should you care and a lot of explanation and science in there about the ways that things go wrong. But there's also a workbook aspect to it. So it's not fully a workbook, but it's got a workbook aspect to it that really walks you through. This is how you make good decisions. These are the processes that you want to put in place. Here's a whole set of tools that you can use in order to do that. So uh, that was a very long answer to say um, readers asked me to.
1: Well, yeah, but the the interesting thing is that, you know, I mean, how to books, everyone learns a little bit differently, right? Like, you know, I think there you get to a point where it becomes challenging to do the how to because. Then there's another layer underneath that, right? Like, well, I don't know what that is. And so was this book more challenging to write for you than thinking in bets? Or was it, was it a natural progression? Like how, how was that writing process different for you? Cause I think I would imagine it would be different.
0: Yeah. So that's so insightful. You're the first person who's actually asked me that question, uh, which is really insightful because this book was a living hell of despair to write <laughs> Uh, if I have to say, um, that's not to say that I'm not like super happy with the outcome. I am. I'm actually quite, quite pleased with the outcome. But the reason why it was so hard was for the reason that you said, right, is that I'm talking about these concepts like resulting, for example. And just so for people to who know, resulting is basically uh, using the quality of the outcome of a decision in order to work backwards and derive the quality of the decision itself. Now that might seem very reasonable, right? On sort of first blush, if I get a bad outcome, I should, I should look at what was wrong with the decision process and assume there were some problems there. And if I get a good outcome, uh, I should s- sort of look for what's right and assume that things went right. But this is the whole problem of uncertainty is that that's actually quite a poor uh, decision process. It's like, that's a very bad uh, heuristic to use and I can put it to you really simply, if you get in an accident, it might not have been your fault, right? Like you can go through a green light and you can get in an accident. You can also, here's the bigger problem. I can go through a red light and I can get through just fine. So just because I got a good outcome from going through a red light, I hardly think that I should assume that going through a red light is a good decision. And yet this is what we do. And if I get through just fine, I assume this is what we do. Now, if it's, I can get you there because it's so clear like this, going through green lights and going through red lights. But what do we do like when you hire someone and they don't work out? Was it a good decision process? Was it a bad decision process? Well, leadership is gonna assume you must've made a mistake, but maybe you didn't. Maybe it's just, it's hiring is hard because all you have is like an interview and a CV and you haven't actually had them in your office for six months, right? So so um, so So now I'm sort of trying to tackle these problems and trying to show people a better way But I have to find a way to get people there intuitively, which meant that I have to offer up a whole bunch of different thought experiments where I'm pretty sure that people are going to come to the same conclusion about what the thought experiment is going to do. Now, I do a little rhetorical trick in there, which is I say, if you're like most people that allows for the few people who don't, I don't quite capture with the thought experiment, but I'm not trying to use that rhetorical trick to get around the fact that most of, most people don't actually get there. I have to figure out things that everybody can get there. And then I have to figure out like, okay, so what's the tool that I can give somebody that's gonna help them solve this problem. So like a simple example, I think that the opening thought experiment in the, in the book is um, imagine that you uh, grew up in the South and you went to college in Georgia And you get offered two jobs Uh, and one is in Florida or in Georgia and one's in Boston. Uh, And you're really worried about the weather in Boston. And, you know, obviously you've never endured a New England weather and you've only ever lived in a place where the climate is really nice uh, and you only know so much about the job. So you think about it. You go up to Boston for a couple of days in the middle of February just to check it out. Um, Doesn't seem that bad. Uh, And I say, so you move to Boston and you hate it. It's horrible, it, you can't take the weather and within a few months you've moved back. Was that a good decision or a bad decision? You know, and like everybody says that was a bad decision. And then and then I offer up the pair, which is you go there and it's great and you love it and you become like an avid snowboarder. Was it a good decision? And everybody says, yes, that was a great decision. But the decision process was the same no matter what. Like the outcome of that particular decision actually tells you very little about whether it was good. So, so that's just the opening thought experiment. There's a billion of them in the book. And, and that was like, that was such a hard process to try to figure out, first of all, where am I supposed to start as I'm trying to build out like a complete decision process for people? How do I actually come up with thought experiments that are intuitive, that are going to get people to to be able to sort of pierce the veil of their own, um, bias and, you know, where your intuition can actually send you wrong. Um, what are the tools that I think are going to be easy enough for people to be able to use and repeat, uh how deep am I supposed to go? Um, and those were all like, those were such hard problems. And then in the middle of it, the, what happened was I was, I was kind of talking about this one issue of like starting to get into probabilistic thinking. And I was trying to write this one chapter and I just got so stuck because it's such a deep topic and you have to figure out like how deep are you going to go? And the way I finally realized, wait, this isn't one chapter. It's two chapters. And that that was sort of after a month of being stuck. So then I divided it into two chapters. I did the first part. And then I went to go do the next chapter. And I got stuck again. And I realized that was actually two chapters. And um, so I divided that up. And what ended up being one chapter, just kind of about probabilistic thinking, uh, ended up being three chapters, which went from probabil- decision trees to probabilities to inside-outside view. And it kind of went in this progression. Um, so yeah, I mean, when you really have to, you know what it is? It's like when you have to put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, and, uh, it's and, and, quite a challenge, and you
1: have to draw the line. Like, I mean, when when I'm right. working on time crafting and you put it into a book, it's like, okay, well, on the internet, I can change, I can evolve the blog post. I mean, I was watching a um, a documentary on amazon prime about tony robbins and it was like a, a profile piece that i think it was the new yorker did or some 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 uh, oh, we'll put a link in the show notes we'll put a link in the show notes um but i was watching it and his version of what he does in the morning on that documentary is very different than what i heard or read before right and so um he had the ability to kind of re- revise it. Right. But once it's in like this book, right. Like once it's there, it's like, okay. Cause you don't, you can't control when someone picks it up. You can't control when someone comes across it. You're like, Oh no, no, that's old school. Like when David Allen wrote getting things done and he changes some of the nuanced language to reflect what matters more now than say what mattered in 2004. Right. Or whenever the book came out, um, that, yeah, that's gotta be a challenge. Right. So how, um, what was when as you were going through this what was one of the parts of the book that you said okay this i i think that this is the go-to for you know when i when i when i bring up tactics and tools the simple ones for people this is the one that i think is the um the portable factor the story you know when they talk about like malcolm gladwell's Ten Thousand hours that you take that out of outliers what's the one in here that you think like this is the one that when I get interviewed or when I get people talk to me about this is the one that seems to be the one that people that most people are taking hold of and running with.
0: So it's interesting, like the the one that everybody takes hold of from my from my books is resulting. Um, you know, I mean, for sure that that's the biggest one. Uh, you can see it all the time, by the way. Like, actually, someone just just wrote me because I wasn't watching it myself, but I you know I opened thinking in bets with 2015 Pete Carroll you know, and the Seahawks against the Patriots. So he 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 decides to, you know, call a pass play with 26 seconds left. It's second down. Uh, and it gets intercepted. And it's just, you know, the worst play call in Super Bowl history. Someone just pointed out to me that it was Andy Reid just did the same thing. I was just going to say
1: to you, oh, my goodness. That was so, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. Andy Reid, fourth down, playing the Browns. They're only up by five. Tony Romo, who is doing the, the color he's vaunted for never being wrong. Like he's like, whatever Tony says is going to happen is going to happen. So they're like, they're going to try to draw them offside because if they draw them offside. They're going to get first down, et cetera, et cetera. Mahomes is not in the game now. He's their main quarterback. They've got the backup Chad Henney, who's like the 13 year veteran. And what does Andy Reed call? He me, a
0: pass play. He pass
1: play. And then what's awesome is they knew exactly what to do. Apparently the, the left guard or the right guard, like tapped his leg. And it was like, okay, we're going to do this. And then Tyreek Hill caught the ball, and not only did he catch it, but he sat down bounds so that the clock kept running, and that was it. It was game over, and no one. Tony, you hear the reaction. You can look at YouTube videos. Tony Romo is literally incredulous with not just like, oh, my gosh, I was wrong, but so happy he was wrong that they did that. And, yeah, no, no one predicted they would call that play. None.
0: No. And you can just as well imagine, you know, particularly with a pass play where that clock is going to stop super fast if you miss and the ball's going to, you know, okay, you can't, you can't run the clock out now that had that fail. That would have been like, what a freaking idiot. Why would you on earth run a play where if it doesn't work, the clock is going to stop.
1: Yeah. You could punt it. You literally, if you don't draw them offside, you punt the ball, Cleveland has it way back at, you know, in there, deep in their Right, territory.
0: And you just like count on your defense. Right. So I'm not saying whether that was a good play or a poor play. I'm saying that the fact that it worked out, has basically nothing to do with whether it's a good play or a poor play. I'd have to go and analyze it. But this is, this is why, like, you see this resulting problem all the time. You put these two plays side by side. Now, I have done the probabilistic work on the Pete Carroll play. And it's one of the most brilliant calls in all of Super Bowl history. And I'm happy to go through that if you want. You can go read about it in my book. It's amazing. But the minute I, I show that video in my talks and I put the still up, and before I have said a word, you hear people, first of all, a lot start to laugh. And then there's usually someone who's like, ah, you know, and that person's from Seattle. And then, and then I'll usually hear like, why didn't they hand it off to Marshawn Lynch? This is before I've opened my mouth. This is how strong this resulting thing is. And it feels so intuitive, right? Like that pass was intercepted. It has to have been a stupid play. And, not, and, it, and it, it was worse than a mistake. It has to be the worst thing that's ever happened because it was on that stage because the stakes were so high against the patriots of, you know, on the what then you have Andy Reid do this and it, it gets, you know, and it works out and people are like, what a brilliant play.
1: So interestingly, I think the other reason that that play, and I'm, again, you've analyzed this, is what Seattle did leading up to that point. That catch that never should have happened that that he made where he was like lying on the ground and it just happened to land. Like there was so many things. It was just build, 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 build. The, the game, as far as everybody in Seattle, and not just Seattle, like they thought it was over. It was over. Absolutely right. over. And then, Nope.
0: Nope. Yeah, so, so there's a variety of reasons why that's a great play. The, the main one, the main one, though, and this is just super simple, is actually similar to why I'm wondering about Andy Reid's play. And again, I haven't do the, done the analysis on the Andy Reid play, uh, but it's a clock problem. So they have 26 seconds left on the one-yard line, uh, but uh, Pete Carroll only has one timeout and it's second down. So, you know, the question that I always put to people is, would you like to have two opportunities to get through the Patriots defense or three, Uh, you know? And people are like, okay, I'd like three. All right, and I'm like, okay. So the maximum number of attempts that the Seahawks is gonna get is three, but there's 26 seconds left, it's got one timeout. So let's say I don't even disagree with you that you'd like Marshawn Lynch to get the ball twice. I'm not gonna disagree with you. If you do that as your first two plays and he fails, it's the end of the game. Like you hand it off to Marshawn Lynch the first time, he doesn't. He doesn't actually advance it to the touchdown. Uh, you're going to have to call timeout. So now, if you hand it him off, that's your last play of the game.
1: Yeah, you. you what it takes it takes between eight and twelve seconds for teams to right. Back so or so like that. if
0: you go hand off to Marshawn Lynch, fail, hand off to Marshawn Lynch again, you've used your timeout and that's your last play. However, if you call for a pass on either second down or third down. Now, when it doesn't work, the clock stops on its own. So what that means is that if you do that, you will get three attempts at the end zone, two of which can be to Marshawn Lynch. You just can't have them be the first two. So what I always say is like, look, I'm completely agnostic whether you should call for a pass play on second down or third down. I don't know. I know that you got to do it on one. He happened to do it on second down, probably from a game theory perspective, not a bad idea because people would assume that you'd hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. But uh, but regardless, we know that you want to do it on one of those two plays. Uh, so that's pretty brilliant. He got himself a third, tr- you know, a third down. So uh, to get into the end zone, um, which is the, the reason why I'm saying to you, wait, wait, like, why would Andy Reid do that? Don't you want to run the clock out? Like, it seems like a pass is pretty risky there. But the, uh, it may also be a totally brilliant play. I'm not I'm not saying it's not.
1: I think the interesting thing is, is that the reason I think he went with that is no one. I mean, the Tony Romo, uh, the, the idea of Tony Romo freaking out that he got it wrong is no one expected it. No one expected
0: Yeah. So, yeah. But I would say, so it's interesting. So that's really interesting. Nobody expected it from Pete Carroll as well. That's why everybody's so pissed. You know, and again, if it works out, you, and you can do the thought experiment. Pete Carroll calls, calls a pass play there and it gets, and it's caught for the game winning touchdown. Is that, that's the most brilliant play in Super Bowl history so this is the Boston problem that I opened my book with, right? Like that's the Boston problem. Oh, it's a touchdown. It's the best play ever. Um, Oh, it's intercepted. It's the worst play ever. No, that that literally that particular iteration has absolutely nothing to do with whether it was a good play call or not. You have to work out the decision trees, figure out what the payoffs are, what the probabilities are, uh, you know, what there's a little bit of options theory in there. Do you have two options or three options in order to get to the To the end zone, so and so forth. And that's really, you know, you have this clock management problem that's like looming over you. Um, But we can do that thought experiment. We know that when it works out, people are like, that's genius because nobody was expecting it. And I think this is where we get the subtle problem with resulting is that uh, it's so easily rationalized, right? Like why it was a bad idea. And I've had people rationalize those things to me all the time uh, because that's just the way our mind works. We want we want the world to make sense. We want it to line up. We don't, I think part of the problem is like we, there's a bias called illusion of control and we kind of live it. And the idea that we're not masters of our own destiny. So if, if Pete Carroll can do something brilliant and lose the Super Bowl, what does that mean for us? Right? Like th- what, a, that's a scary place to like, let our identities kind of sit in. And we don't want our identities to sit in there. And so much of this cognition is kind of identity protective. Um, so we want to feel like we have control. So, yeah. So, I, you know, for sure. And it's, you know, and it's very funny about resulting because um, in thinking in bets, I talked about it for sure. Like, I, you know, in the, the first, if you, if you looked at the first draft of thinking in bets, you would not see that term in there. So I had I had had talked about it, and I I was talking about this uncertain relationship between outcomes and decision making, and I think that I was so, um, you know, I had just retired from poker when I started writing that book, and uh, you know, I have this background in academics, and and the majority of my time, even during the last decade of my poker career, was actually spent in consulting and uh, in business consulting, and now I'm back in academic labs, like doing research, and this is really like where my original uh, life started. Uh, and I was really specifically not wanting people to think that I was just a poker player. Um, not that just a poker player is a bad thing. It's like an amazing thing to be, but like I, I was, I sort of wanted people to see that there were many other things. So I was sort of shying away from frame, framing things in poker terms, but resulting as a term that me and my poker friends bandied about a lot because this is a really huge problem in poker. What, when you lose a hand, what does it mean? when you win a hand, what does it mean? Well, I know what it means after a thousand hours, right? Like then I know what it means, but I don't know what it means on a given hand. Did did I lose because I played poorly? Uh, Did I lose because it was a bad turn of a card? Did I lose because uh, I didn't have enough experience with Mike as an individual to be able to model how he would behave toward his hand well enough? Like there are all these questions that we have to ask ourselves and it's actually quite difficult to untangle. And one of the things that you hear from poker players all the time is, is you know, when they win, they're talking about how brilliant they were. You know, oh, I played so brilliantly. Uh, and and when they lose, uh, when an, so when they lose, they talk about um, how unlucky they got. And you can see these traps happening and sort of the way that you're sort of sorting these results. And so one of the interesting things is um, the way that we treat other people, someone like Pete Carroll, is different than the way we treat ourselves. And it's both because of identity, right? So with Pete Carroll, uh, when he wins, it's because he's great. When he loses, it's because he's bad. Um, and that's this idea that we're master of our own destiny. So that's how we deal with somebody else. But when we deal with ourselves in order to protect our identities as decision makers, when we win, it's because we're great. When we lose, it's bad luck. So we, we all know that, right? Like this is called self-serving bias. So you hear this with poker players all the time. So, you know, the, the elite players were always like really obsessed with fear of that kind of mistake. Right, Fear of resulting, fear of self-serving bias. And one of the things we used to say, it was sort of code we'd say when we're talking to each other, I would say, blah, 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 but maybe I'm just resulting. And like, you would always be adding this in because you'd be begging them to tell you. Like, am I just resulting? Am I taking the wrong lessons from this? So I hadn't put it in the original draft of the book because it's a very pokery term. And I was a little bit shying away from those poker terms. And I have to say, this is really credit to my husband, who said, you know, these terms are there for a reason. And adding in some of these cool things that were coming from poker and coming from gambling, um, I think is a really good thing. It's a way to to sort of bring these concepts alive and and give them sort of animate them for people. And he really encouraged that. And so, when then, when I went back and I did the second draft of, of, Of thinking in bats when I was talking about that Pete Carroll story resulting appears now on like the first page of the book. Um, And, and I'm so glad that it's there now because it, he was right. It, it, it really animates the concept in a way that there's a, there's an academic term for it called outcome bias,
1: yawn. Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And plan to eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. And you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the plan to eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plantoeat.com slash timecrafting. That's plantoeat.com forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give Plan to Eat a try today. And now let's take a break from the conversation with Annie to talk about this episode's sponsors. The new year is here and with that marks a fresh start for your small business. So whether you're shifting business hours or hiring more remote employees like I am, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team and when your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. And to lend a helping hand, your first job post is free. I really like the fact that you can go into LinkedIn, a familiar platform, go into LinkedIn Jobs and just start finding those candidates. It's such a wide variety of candidates available to you because it's such a great pool that linkedin draws from Uh, you know when i'm looking for administrative help when i'm looking for marketing i'm not a very good digital marketer uh, you know those kind of things i look to linkedin jobs first it's just easy to navigate easy to use and i know i'm going to get the right people and remember linkedin is an active community of professionals you know there's more than 722 million members worldwide so you can cast a pretty wide net and getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly you can post a job with targeted screening questions and linkedin will quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates which saves you time and energy and you can manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on as i mentioned the familiar linkedin.com as functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. So again, ease of use, simplicity, that's what you're looking for when you're trying to get some help. And now you can do all of this from your mobile device. So no matter where the day takes you, you can access LinkedIn Jobs. And that's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right person and hire them faster. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. And now you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash timecrafting. Again, that's linkedin.com slash timecrafting to post a job for absolutely free. Now, terms and conditions apply. Your business needs help and LinkedIn Jobs can help make that happen. Go to linkedin.com slash timecrafting to post that job for free today. This week actually marks the date during the month of january where most new year's resolutions fall by the wayside so if you're somebody that's been trying to improve your health or get fit you might have fallen prey to that january 19th day but that doesn't mean you need to quit it just means that you may have had a little bit of a setback and if you want to improve your health but you're not sure where to start maybe that was a stumbling block i mean I get it. There's thousands of health strategies available, so identifying which one works for your body is difficult. But listen, according to MetPro, the key to seeing results is to master your metabolism. You see, at MetPro, your metabolism isn't some mystery. It's a data point. Armed with hard science, MetPro is your health concierge, delivering one-on-one coaching and personalized nutrition and fitness regimens. It's not just about weight loss. MetPro's coaches provide busy professionals, athletes weekend warriors, and everyone in between with the support and education they need to live a healthier life. MetPro's team of experts has worked with the most recognizable names in sports, entertainment, and business, and they've helped thousands of individuals transform their bodies by hacking their metabolism. I've worked with MetPro before, looking forward to working with them again. You know, I mean, the planning, the preparation that goes into it, like anything, allows you to reach the results you're looking for. And I mean, I... I have to say that when I was using MetPro before, and I, I again, like resolutions, they can fall by the wayside. Uh, when I was using them, I was seeing results, and I know you will too. Recently, MetPro has launched a new tool that allows you to experience the same science and tailored strategies that their experts use. Now, this isn't a food logging tool or workout app the MetPro app allows you to start tracking, analyzing, and learning what your metabolism responds to best. And see, that's key because when you understand what's happening, then you're going to be more likely to make changes happen and not only do that, but make them stick. So if you're looking for a high touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want access to the tools their industry leading coaches use, visit metpro.co slash timecrafting to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. Now, Listeners of the Productivious podcast will also get up to one month free when they sign up. That's easy for me to say. It's a mouthful. But listen, one month for free? That's amazing. So don't delay. Don't delay at all. There's no reason to wait. Head to metpro.co slash timecrafting to take advantage of this opportunity today. One of the habits that I think is worth cultivating if you are taking on a New Year's resolution or you just want to create a better habit is just reading more. And reading things that are going to be, you know, enticing and invigorating and inspiring and, and realistically stuff that, that that you're going to enjoy reading time and time again. And The New Yorker fits that bill for me. In print and online, The New Yorker stands apart for its commitment to truth and accuracy quality writing and compelling reporting and storytelling the new yorker is considered by many to be one of the most influential publications in the world that's why i love to go through the the productivity pieces in the new yorker former guest and upcoming guest cal newport uh, he talks about the rise and fall of getting things done you know we've got articles in there but the truth about isaac newton's productive plague uh the service that makes shame a productivity hack can bullet journaling save you i mean if you're looking for some time management and productivity articles that are really worth reading that you can sink your teeth into the new yorker has them and the new yorker's weekly print issues and daily online articles cover a full range of topics so we're not just talking about productivity and time management there's something for everybody politics news international affairs climate change the environment popular culture the arts fiction food humor and cartoons i mean the list is is it goes on and on and the new yorker has become the daily digital destination for news and cultural coverage publishing 10 to 15 exclusive site only stories every day so if you love reading your stuff online you know you're going to get those exclusive stories through the new yorker and in addition to that you can use their apps and read from the online archive dating all the way back to, get this, 1925. You can also solve crossword puzzles there and more. And in both print and online digital issues, The New Yorker has content from the best writers in America today. I've mentioned just a few of them. And and a 12-week subscription for just $6 includes home delivery of the print edition each week and unlimited access to The New Yorker website. This is a 50% discount for listeners of the Productivityist podcast. So... Again, I am a massive fan of what The New Yorker does. I'm really happy that they are a sponsor of this episode. And if you are looking for something to read on a regular basis, something that's going to fill your cup, fulfilling reads, reads that, you know, are going to make you think uh, you can't go wrong with The New Yorker. Now, for a limited time, you can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6. That's a savings of $50 percent plus listeners of the productivities podcast will also receive an exclusive tote bag for free so just go to newyorker.com slash timecrafting and then use the promo code time crafting at checkout that's a key thing so that's n-e-w-y-o-r-k-e-r.com slash time crafting and then enter the promo code time crafting to get 12 weeks of the new yorker for just six dollars and that free tote bag so again You don't want to miss this opportunity. I'm a fan of the New Yorker. I'm so happy that they have decided to sponsor the podcast. And I know that you're going to get a lot out of this offer. So again, newyorker.com slash timecrafting, enter the promo code timecrafting, get 12 weeks for just $6, a 50% discount and the free tote bag. What are you waiting for? Do it today. Now let's get back to my conversation with Annie Duke here on the Productivityist podcast. Isn't it fascinating? We were talking about, um, you know, you were talking about before we jumped on the the call about how you watch things, you know, like, because you have interests that are different than your husband's. My wife is the same. Like, my wife does not consider productivity and time management. She held me on a coaching call going, how do they not know that? Like, she'll overhear something. She goes, you're literally giving them common sense. But that's not always the case. Um, But what you've done with resulting is you've taken a term, you've, you've, You've given them access, I think, right? Like, to a point, like, I will, like, when I talk about theming your time, people know what theme, I mean, they get it. Oh, it's a theme. If you can, I think what's what's great is if you can take something that you're really good at and apply it, like, Jerry Seinfeld talks about this in Comedian, the idea of com- comedians, and I did comedy for a while, is comedy is the act of making the ordinary extraordinary the extraordinary ordinary. And so if you can bring real-life situations like I try to do with time management, they it flips a switch right like it's like in that story about Pete Carroll, and i mean even when you were talking about the idea of people trying to control we were talking about vision earlier vision at the end of age of ultron one of his quotes is and i have it right here in front of me humans are odd they think order and chaos are somehow opposites and try to control what won't be but there's grace in their failings right like i think it's when you can take something that is widely known or, or maybe outside of the sphere of academia or whatever, your area, of, and that go, hey, let's bring poker into this. And they go, oh, I love poker. Oh, I've, you know, that's interesting. It it helps them break through some of those things that keep them from making decisions. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, I, I really do. And I, I think that it goes into some some amazing work that's just been on, done on mental models, right? Which, which goes back to work on, honestly, a little bit on chunking, right? That we remember things better when we can chunk them together. Why are we better at remembering a phone number than a random string of numbers, right? Because we have context around it. We can chunk that together. We can kind of understand how those numbers kind of go together. We can think about it as what's the area code, right? So we've got that chunk and we we remember the area code, right? And that helps us. Um, and then when we think about mental models, it's, it's you know, like theming is a mental model, right? So th- this allows us to take uh, all this information and make sense of it, it, which is what we do as human beings, right? We're not, we're not computers that are just searching a database, right? Like uh, so it gives us, con- we need context. We need to understand how does it fit into the world? How do I understand this? And and I think there's two ways we can do that. One is through giving people really good mental models. And I think that resulting does that, right? Like that term resulting, it's so clear how what I'm looking for. What How am I thinking about this problem? And I think that's incredibly important. And the, the other is animation, right? Like we have to bring those things alive. And this is true, actually, when we think about it, this is sort of like, you know, There's that saying, the opposite of a a great truth is also a truth. And Phil Tetlock, uh, when I was talking to him a, a few months ago about my new project, said, well, we could really take that and say the opposite of a virtue. A great virtue is also a virtue. And when we think about that idea of animation, how do we make things vivid in order to allow people to be more productive, allow people to really understand these concepts better? That's really just taking something like availability bias and turning it to the good. So for people who don't know what availability bias is, it's basically that when we're trying to judge the frequency of things out in the world, that the more uh, vivid or easily, uh, more easily we, we can, can recall the memory, the more uh, frequent that we think it is. So this goes into this, I'll, I'll give people another mental model, which is processing fluency. So uh, processing fluency is just kind of like, how quickly can we and thoroughly can we process some sort of concept? And that has to do also with how easy is it to recall from memory? Um, And there's all sorts of bad things that come out of that one is availability bias. So for example, if you ask people, um, this is the classic example, uh, what's more dangerous falling coconuts or sharks? And people uh, say sharks, sharks are super dangerous, but falling coconuts are like 30 to one, more dangerous than sharks. Uh, many more people die from, from uh, falling coconuts than from sharks, but it's not, we don't really hear about it in the we, we hear about shark attacks and we've seen the movie Jaws. And so all of this gives it uh, more, it's more vivid. It's easier for us to call. We have more processing fluency around it. And so we assume it must be more frequent. Now you can imagine back on the Savannah, when hominids first appeared, that this was not a bad strategy, right? If I come across something in my little tiny world uh, and I see it more often, it's probably more frequent. Now uh, that is a very poor strategy in the world in general. Um, and so we, uh, and this has deep implications for like uh, resource allocation. So as an example, like uh, how the the resource allocation toward, you um, uh, terrorist attacks from foreign uh, from foreign threats uh, we actually we actually way over allocate to that because people you know when those things happen, which is quite quite rare like they're very scary uh, and we and the people remember them and they demand they demand that those those resources get allocated in that way but there are, but infrastructure is much more dangerous like the, the chance of the chance of you dying because a bridge collapse because we haven't put the money into that is much greater than you dying at the hands of a foreign terrorist. But we put much more money into protecting ourselves from foreign terrorists than, well, I mean, I guess the joke is infrastructure week, right? We don't really...
1: I guess the argument too, I mean, we can bring it to the recency of, of COVID-19. Like people are like, oh, COVID-19 is like, you know, like, but we're not thinking about, and it's second order thinking, right? It's not just the the people that get COVID-19. It's okay. There's the, the ICU units are full. There's a massive car accident on the freeway. Because the ICU units are full because of COVID, we can't save all those people. So we need to prevent COVID. So these ICU units are ready for free in the instance that that could happen. And they're like, but people are busy fighting COVID. I'm like, no, no, no. But you don't understand. It's not just about COVID-19. Right. It's about... But, exactly. Right? You know what I mean? Like, and I think right. that people miss that. They don't think yeah. about... They don't think about, you know... I mean, they're like, oh, I love the fact that we're going to be working from home now. We've been thrust into that environment, which which is great. I think it was going to happen anyways. It's just been exacerbated, right? Or Or, or, or right. sped up. But... Here's the thing is most people aren't thinking about, okay, I get to work from home now. Businesses, that's going to be great. Yeah, but now businesses are going to realize how good this is. And maybe they're going to change the way that they, they look at how businesses are structured where it's not hours-based, but now it's results-based. So now they're not going to go, you're not putting 40 hours in. You're just going to get, so that could be a benefit. But also, now we're not going to rent all that real estate in Austin or San Francisco. So now the commercial real estate market starts to collapse. And yeah. oh, wait everyone's working from home now. Well, now we need to change internet fees from home and we need to have business tiers and you need to prove that you're not so, but no one thinks about that. They just think about.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a huge problem with thinking about unintended consequences, right? We need to be thinking about like, well, what are both sides of that? Right. So um, one of the easiest way it's, it's hacked. And I think that you can see this on social media is that uh, if we just repeat things a lot, uh, they start to sound true. Why? Because it's easier to recall things that you uh, have heard before. Um, and we use that as a proxy for it's also true. So the easier and more thoroughly that we can process something, uh, we assign sort of to use the, the Stephen Cole pair, like truthiness, it, it becomes more truthy. So there was working way back as far as back, into the late seventies um, by a woman named Lynn Hasher. And she, she had, uh, she presented people with like these facts that were um, like, they, they were like on, someone wouldn't know right off the bat if they were true or not. So it wasn't things like elephants are purple, right? Obviously, it doesn't matter how many times I say that to you. You're like, well, it's not true. And in her case, it was like uh, uh, giraffes are the only mammal that can't jump. Okay, so you got to put a little thought into that one. Um, so if you do put some thought into it, you'll be like, wait a minute, what about elephants, right? Or hippos or rhinos? <laughs> I don't think they can jump. But but on first blush, it's like, is that true or not? It's not clear. So anyway, so she's, she's presenting you with this whole list of facts. And you're supposed to just say, are they, uh, how true do they feel to you on a scale of zero to five? Um, and what she finds is that, and then she brings you in next week and she gives you another list of facts and she brings you in on the third week. She gives another list of facts and there's some repeats that are embedded in there. So like giraffes are the only mammal that can jump will repeat in there. And what she finds is that when you get to the third time that you hear something like this, People will rate it as as true as the first time they hear something that's actually true. So like one of the things, so, you know, this is the, the this is the downside to this processing fluency thing. Right. And I remember, so one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting was that, I don't know if you follow Daniel Dale, but he's, he's like the fact checker for CNN. He, so he's fact checking and he's like, he would fact check Trump a lot. And we know that Trump repeats things a lot. Like he'll repeat the same thing over and over again. And Daniel Dale would like, uh, and I think that this is where you get into these kind of traps. So he, so he would um, uh, say something that he would say of, of something that Trump had said, like in a in a speech, um, and he'd say, "This is uh, this is the hundredth time I'm fact checking it. It's still not true." And he would sort of be pulling his hair up and be like, "I don't understand. Like, why does Trump keep saying this?" I all the fact checkers are saying it's not true, um, and if you think about it from the perspective that I've just told you, and then you get into this weird thing of well, then Daniel Dale is actually in some ways contributing because he's re- in fact checking it, he's repeating it. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't fact check people, but I'm saying then you now you get into this problem, and then when you think about uh, this other kind of warfare, which is information warfare, and some sort of vehicle like Twitter. Twitter is like this repeating, it's a replication machine. (laughs) You're just like, so then what happens is that like a Russian bot or something will come on and they'll say something that isn't, you know, they'll do something that isn't true. And then they have a bot farm that then repeats that. And then there's a bunch of actual humans who I don't think are trying to do anybody harm, but they've now seen that message repeated. It now feels very true to them. And then they start to repeat it. And, you know, and this all goes back to theming
1: well and not only that or resulting right but not only that and what's interesting is um you know back to the original question like the how, or one of the questions we asked about like the how to versus the why whenever i tell someone that they should like think about teaming their time like well what how what theme should i choose like i i don't know i don't know your situation you. <laughs> so then then you get into that that tough part which is when it's like okay well here's how and and then that becomes like the why is like this you can really get into the why, but the how becomes like it just expands because you're not just dealing with like most you're you're trying to find out where the most people lie. And if it's a concept like you said, resulting where it's like I kind it's lived in this niche for a while, and I'm expanding its its purview, for me, it's like the same thing. It's like, okay, well, I'm expanding it like where it's going, its reach, but that means I need to try to bring more people in. And that in and of itself is the challenging part, which can get quite exhausting as you.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, I'm very careful in saying like, your values are your values and your goals are your goals, right? Like, here's how I can give you structure for trying to figure out among options, like what should I choose in order to actually help me to achieve my goal? But I'm not going to tell you what your goal is. You need to decide that. I can't tell you what your resources are. That's for you to decide. I can give you a structure and a process that you can then, you know, take your own individual self and your own individual goals and your resources and what you're trying to accomplish and the things that you value. And you can now slot it into this structure. But that's not like the easiest, you know, it's like, that's hard.
1: And that's, so the thing is, is when we're looking at this book, it's like they have to do the work, right? So
0: last question- This is very much a do the work
1: book. Right, so my last question before we wrap up is, how and it might be a long question maybe a hard one to answer is okay so we've said that you say you have to make the decision on your goals your intentions what's what is your what's one action or or a piece of advice that you can give to say how they can break past that so they can start to do it because i think that's a big barrier people need to break because again there's a bias there right like oh it seems like there's a lot but there's not so the idea of because it's the hard thing right the hard thing isn't I mean, doing like checking off a to-do list, if you're doing like, that's why inbox zero for emails is so easy. Like, oh, I know I have to answer these emails. And, oh, look, I answered 300 emails. That means I was productive. Were you? Were you really productive? Like, is that your only part of your job? So it's the hard stuff, the impact stuff, the stuff that you actually have to take thought. And so you could give them a framing device and a system and a framework to work off of. But... Like you said, I can't decide your goals. I can't decide your, I can't decide what themes you should choose for your day or what, what, you know, what you're looking for you, but here's a tool that will help you. How, what did, like, what advice can you give to have someone break through that? Like, okay, you know what? I do need to do this work. That decision. Cause that's a hard yeah. one. That's, that's the one I, once, I think once that happens, the momentum is there to keep going, Right.
0: Yeah, so I think this is a theme, (laughs) I get it. Um, A theme in all my work is to to get, get on the right time horizon. So I think that we always have this internal fight between what's good for present me or what feels good for present me and what's actually good for me in the long run. And I think that's true whether you're talking about like, ooh, there's this yummy piece of cake in front of me right now, but also I would like to live till I'm 90, right? So that's a time horizon problem, right? Obviously, the cake is very yummy for me now, but not so great for 90-year-old me if I'd like that person to exist. Um, and I think that the same is true in terms of the decisions that we make on a daily basis and, and how much work are we willing to put in. Uh, that might be hard work. Um, it might expose to us uh, that there's all sorts of things that we believe that actually were wrong or needed to be ca- recalibrated or whatever, that we, that the processes that we've been doing, uh, even if we get good outcomes, weren't the best processes that we could have done, that maybe some of the bad outcomes that we've gotten in our life were actually because we didn't actually have good process uh, and we weren't making good decisions, right? Th- those are all very hard things for us in the moment, right? You know what's not hard for us in the moment? In box zero. Right? Like, because I get it, I get the hit, I get like the dopamine hit right away, like, ha, zero. Now actually sort of deciding which things should I put aside and what am I supposed to focus on? And, and, and uh, should I be responding to all of those? Should I, should I be using that time to get that to zero as opposed to using it for other things that those are complex. And um, those are things that sort of play out over a longer time horizon. So here's the thing that I would say is just ask yourself this question, start with this, do I think that my life will be better if my decision-making gets better over the course of my life? Now that one, I, th- I assume the answer is yes. And then I, would inc- then I would come up with the follow-on question, which is this, if your decision-making is going to improve, do you think that along the way, you're gonna discover that some uh, process, some decision process that you're employing or certain beliefs that you had about the world, you're gonna find out that they weren't exactly 100% correct or true. uh, And you're gonna actually have to um, rethink those things. And I think the answer is also yes. And that's a relatively easy yes because uh, there's a whole bunch of things I believed when I was 20 that I just, (laughs) just want to like shoot myself now <laughs> so I can look I can look back on that now and see very clearly that there were a whole bunch of things that I, I wish that I could have gone back and changed in the moment but you there's all sorts of beliefs that you have today that are just like that. So I think if you recognize that in the abstract, as I think about the longer time horizon, what am I trying to accomplish in my life? That it, there's going to be some pain along the way, where I'm going to discover that something I believed isn't true, or some person who I thought was trustworthy isn't, or some some decision process that I thought was amazing, uh, was you know uh, isn't. Um, that yes, I'm going to have to do that, and we've seen that in the life of bit. Like it used to be a big thing in. Um, in a uh, to be like, I'm results oriented. And now we know like that's a super destructive thing for your business, but people used to be very confident that that was the right way to lead, right? And so we know like on a macro level, this happens. We know this can happen on a micro level. Okay, so once you accept that, then you have to live it. You have to say, I'm willing to dive in head first and I'm willing to do the work and try these things out and realize I might have to undo some things and, and try some different ways and think about the world in, in a different way. Uh, and really live in a way that where I'm not just questioning my own beliefs, but I'm allowing other people's perspectives into my world in a way that's really true to their perspectives. I'm allowing for the fact that they may see things differently than I do, that we could be looking at the same data and we could come to different conclusions about it, that that we could look at the same data, come to the same conclusion about it and still think that the thing we're supposed to do given that conclusion is different. And that if we don't allow those to all sort of live in the same space and I don't immediately dismiss them as wrong because I view it as an attack on my identity and that I see what the long-term value of allowing those different perspectives into my world is, then that's how you truly are gonna make progress. And progress comes through, you know, it's like no pain, no gain, through saying, I might have to do some hard work now and, and by the way, the hard work isn't going to be that the that the decision tools in my book are hard to implement. Uh, they're actually quite easy to implement. The hard work is is to say, I care about my long-term self and so I have to allow that I might be wrong. And that's a that's a hard thing to get to, but it is absolutely worthwhile to do it. it there's nothing that's going to improve your life more.
1: Annie, this has been a great conversation. The book is called How to Decide Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Where can people pick up the book and keep up with you?
0: So uh, you can go to my web page, my website, rather, which is uh, www.annieduke.com. And you'll see there's a contact form there if people want to contact me. But there's also like lots of video of me talking on there. There's archived newsletters and whatnot. Um, You can also get links to buy my books. Uh, and then uh, you know, uh, people follow me on Twitter at Annie Duke. I tweet some stuff, um, uh, and uh, so that's another place that people can sort of find me. Um, and and you know, as I said, I hope that people heard loud and clear that uh, I wrote How to Decide because my readers asked me to. Um, now the next book I'm writing is is because it's a, it's an idea. I literally can't let it go. <laughs> it burrowed into my brain and I need to, I need to do it, but um, I'm, I'm excited about the next book, but um, yeah. So, so I love hearing from readers. I, I, I probably get more out of interactions with my readers than my readers get out of interactions with me. And hopefully that's not because I'm, I'm a bad conversationalist. It's just that that's like, for me personally, that's where I learn the most. Um, about my own thoughts and my own work, and by the way, it's where I become the most challenged. That's where my ideas evolve is from from talking to other people. Um, and I love it when my ideas evolve. So
1: Annie, thanks, thanks again so much for taking the time today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having uh, the t- uh, thanks for joining me rather today on the Productivityist podcast.
0: Well, thank you for having me.
1: What did I tell you? What a great conversation. Annie is a fantastic person to talk to we talked before we recorded. We actually kept going after I stopped uh, the recording. It was great. I can't wait to have her back on the show. And it's not the first time that I will have repeat guests. I've had repeat guests before when they have new books out. Cal Newport's got a new book coming out. I'm going to have him on the show again in the future. But I've also had him on the podcast before. And if you're a subscriber or if you subscribe to the podcast, if you're not already a subscriber, you're going to be able to access the back catalog that features guests like Derek Sivers, Seth Godin, David Allen, who has also been on the podcast more than once, but also the guests that are upcoming, you know, the Cal Newports, the, the, the folks like that, the people that I'm going to have more interesting conversations with. So hit the subscribe button in the podcast device you are listening to right now, whatever app is your favorite, go ahead and listen. That way you don't miss a single episode of the Productivity is podcast. That's 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 it for this week. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Until next time. I'm Mike Vardy, the host of the productivity is podcast reminding you to stop guessing and start going. See you later.